Fairy stories are not in normal English usage about fairies or elves, but stories about fairy, that is, fairy, the realm or state in which fairies have their being. Fairy contains many things besides elves and fays, and besides dwarfs, witches, trolls, giants, or dragons. It holds the seas, the sun, the moon, the sky, and the earth, and all things that are in it, tree and bird, water and stone, wine and bread, and ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. This, of course, is from uh, Tolkien's On Fairy Stories, one of my favorite essays, I, I think, ever, but certainly of Tolkien's, and uh, one that's been profoundly um, influential. I am Annika Smith. And I am Chris Pipkin. And I am Megan Logsdon. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Should we should we back up and, and just kind of talk about um, anything regarding the context of this uh, um, of this essay? Like, why was it written? Um, what what were the circumstances? Um, should we talk about any of that, or should we just like dive right into the essay itself? I like to talk dive a little in. bit about the. Oh, you want to dive in? Okay. No, no, no. You you go go for. Give me the context. Give me the context. It's just a very brief font. I mean, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of stuff, but um, uh, this was originally actually a, a lecture that Tolkien gave in uh, 1939. It was an Andrew Lang lecture. Um, and then he later expanded it into the essay that we have in front of us today. Um, and it was first published actually in a collection called Essays uh, presented to Charles Williams, which the Inklings were planning to put together um, to give to Charles Williams when he left Oxford to go back to London once the war was over. And um, when he died unexpectedly, they turned it into more of a memorial volume. And uh, all of the proceeds from it actually went to his widow um, to help to help her um, after that. And so that's um, the first time it, it saw publication. And I think it went, it went through a few revisions after that, but yeah. Yeah, and um, the, recently there's a new sort of critical edition um, available in uh, paperback, so pretty affordable. Um, Tolkien on Fairy Stories, uh, expanded edition with commentary and notes, um, edited by Verlin Flieger and Douglas A. Anderson, which we all plunked down good money to get <laughs> um, because that's how we roll. Um, but uh, um, yeah, it's it's worth checking out um um yeah so we let's just dive in you know he starts with i propose to speak about fairy stories though i'm aware that this is a rash adventure let's undertake the equally rash adventure of speaking about his speaking about fairy stories in in this in this sort of introductory part what, what is he what is he sort of like responding to um and and uh, what are what are some of the sort of major um 
uh, points that he seems to be making just, you know, to, to introduce his, his essay and his attempt to talk about fairy stories. Well, he's pushing back on the idea of fairies in the Victorian sense as the diminutive, um, domesticated, uh, children's only, only appropriate for children, um, sort of cute creatures. And he, he's like, no, fairies are weird and strange and really different. And, and he's also talking about what a true story is and the nature of myth, which is, um, of course, aimed at, at uh, Lewis and Tolkien, uh, I think especially, uh, but also his audience here. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of sass about um, the Oxford English Dictionary, which he used to work <laughs> for, uh, doing, you know, such such famous words as walrus um, and <laughs> others. And, and Wait, Dabber. he did walrus? He did walrus, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, he, he did, he did a, a, a bunch of other words for W as well. Oh. I, I forget um, which ones, but. Yeah. It's like doing Job for the Jerusalem Bible and Walrus for the Oxford <laughs> English Dictionary. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, yeah. Um, Seems appropriate. Um, and, and by the way, listeners, um, I realize that there are about half a dozen different places you could go for uh, maybe uh, people who know more about Tolkien than me. Um, and probably, um, probably my, my co-hosts as well. Uh, the, the well of Tol- Tolkien runs deep and there are those who have drained it to the very dregs. Um, <laughs> we are not those, um, but we do like the Inklings a whole lot. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, nowhere else can you get the sort of, uh, sparkling conversation about <laughs> writers than the Inklings Variety Hour. And that's our, that's the special thing that we can offer you. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, taking issue right off the bat with, uh, the way the Oxford English Dictionary defines, uh, fairy story, um, or, or fairy tale, right? Um, and he says it's, it's said to be a tale about fairies, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, an unreal or incredible story or a falsehood, right? Those, th- those three senses, senses that he's kind of like, and none of them are good enough. Um, none of those senses define what I, John Ronald Royal Tolkien says a fairy story is right. Um, and, uh, and he gives throughout the rest of this, um, you know, first part at least gives reasons why um, these definitions are inadequate. And yeah, especially takes aim at the idea that, uh, fairies need to be of diminutive size um, because that's uh, that's something that is popular in uh, Victorian England, certainly. Um, he, he seems to lay the blame at, um, at least partially, at uh, rationalism or rationalization. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, which transformed the glamour of Elfland into mere finesse and invisibility into a fragility that could hide in a cowslip or shrink behind a blade of grass. Um, and so it's, you know, that's, that's part of it. Um, that's where he's, uh, it says, uh, where's, oh, it seems to become fashionable soon after the great voyages had begun to make the world seem too narrow to hold both men and elves. Um, 
So there's this idea of, um, you know, the uh, fairies just, you know, they're, they're this, they're not really real. They're just kind of made up fancies that children, you know, should enjoy. And, and we adults are much too mature to indulge in such, in such things. So, um, yeah, that's where I think he's, he's getting that, the, or at least laying the blame for why fairies became this little cutesy, like little nature bugs or something <laughs> hiding yeah. in the ground. Yeah, um, he talks about the the senses of the word fairy, right? Um, and that in in Middle English, anyway, um, the earlier senses of the word fairy they had to do with a place, right? Um, uh, someone looked as as if they were of fairy, right? Mm -hmm. um, rather than a fairy, right? Which yeah. the Oxford English Dictionary gets wrong, right? Um, the thing the thing that he kind of traces is how did fairy go from being this other world right with people who were like actually larger than life right and and with people who you know were were beautiful and glamorous and essentially like kind of like secular gods right um like like um otherworldly beings with power um and 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 magic um to these little butterfly people, you know, that fly around and hide in, <laughs> hide in flowers and things like that. And even in, you know, even in good works of fantasy, like, uh, Fantasties, you have that, right. Mm -hmm. You have, you have these uh, Victorian saccharine, uh, fairies that act like, I mean, even in Peter Pan, right. Um, that's, that's what Tinkerbell sort of is. Um, um, so yeah, how did we get from the one to the other? And part of the place that he lays the blame is on the Renaissance, um, because in the Renaissance you have the world becoming smaller as a result of uh, these voyages um, and people discovering more and more of the world and realizing that fairy isn't really out there, and basically, uh, you know, having having fairy be become increasingly um, looked down upon which makes it in like the plays of dramatists like Shakespeare and Drayton um, or well plays of Shakespeare uh, Drayton's not a, not a dramatist I don't think um, uh, you know make, makes them small makes them like little people that can hide behind a uh, you know get caught in a cobweb or hide behind a flower or something like that um, I mean I, I think I think partly um, it's also got to do with looking down on um, and you can see this a lot in Midsummer Night's Dream. It's got to do with looking down on local customs mm -hmm. um, in preference for like classical myth, right? Um, and so like things like, you know, beings like Puck, right, become subordinate to like Titania, um, right? Which Puck is like a local English sprite. Titania is obviously got classical, you know, um, aspects to her. Um, but um, but but yeah, just gradually, um, this sort of English um, folk belief um, being more and more sort of pushed down um, until yeah, until they're just sort yeah. of negative. Um, so Tolkien also he talks about fairy being the perilous realm. And stories not necessarily being about the fairies themselves, but about the adventures of men in the perilous realm or upon its shadowy marches. Um, and this stuck out to me the first time I read it and, and still um, the, 
the not, um, how do I want to say this? It's not naive, but it is sort of shocking. Um, for if elves are true and really exist independently of our tales about them, then this also is true. Elves are not primarily concerned with us, nor we with them. Our fates are sundered and our paths seldom meet. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I don't, not having the familiarity with the deep um, web of story that Tolkien is coming from, the, the idea of elves, yes, of elves existing so separately and sort of the, the dual path, which is really obvious in, in Lord of the Rings or Tolkien's own work of subcreation. Um, but it's not something that I ever encountered apart from Tolkien. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Some of the things that he asserts about elves just sort of make me figure that he's had encounters with them or something like that. Uh, because, <laughs> right? because it does, yeah. it's like, I haven't really been able to see, I mean, I get what he's saying about, um, you know, about people in the Renaissance and afterward making them of smaller stature and of less importance, right? Um, that, that definitely happened um, compared to like the other world in medieval romances, uh, which, which is often not even called fairy, right? It's, it's, sometimes it is, but, but usually it's just like, oh, I crossed a bunch of water and found myself in a very weird castle and some, you know, uh, queen or princess wants to marry me for some reason, you know, like just very, um, uh, obviously we're not in the normal world, but I don't know that we ever were in the first place. And, and, um, in these, you know, Arthurian romances or, or whatever else. Um, um, but, um, but, but doesn't Arthur belong in fairy? I mean, right. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. He he even goes um, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight as a high example of um, a fairy story to be where the magic is taken seriously, neither laughed at nor explained away, um, and the seriousness to him is a is a key point. And I, I think that's also something he is reacting to in the Victorian fairy stories, the way the fairies um, are either kind of slyly winked at or mm. how they're preachy. Yeah. yeah. Which is a little <laughs> bit interesting that he picks out Sir Gowan and the Green Knight because the magic theory is both laughed at and explained away. Um, and, and the actual row. <laughs> and he, he, he had to have known this cause he prepared a, you know, a, a great critical edition of the poem. You know, his, his translation was, was also, you know, released after his death. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, you as the reader are not supposed to laugh at it. You 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 should be enchanted by the Green Knight, even though at the beginning when his you know head is cut off. Um, but, but isn't that? I mean, that's that's Arthur trying to protect Guinevere. Like yeah. that's 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 oh, this is really serious. Let's make sure she doesn't faint by trying to laugh it off. Ha ha! What a good joke. Like, which makes you like. As a literary device, I think it makes you take it seriously. I don't. I don't think the story itself is treating it as anything other than right. Very real, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the that's that's the funny thing about Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is, um, 
charting the kind of responses by people to the to the sort of central marvel of the tale. But even like Bertilak, um, after he um, after he becomes the Green Knight again and almost chops off Gowan's head, is <laughs> explains explains himself away. Is like, oh, I'm really Bertilak, um, you know, and and Morgan, you know enchanted me and that's why i look like this and you know I, i'm really just like a normal guy and then he rides away as the green knight and you never hear from him again um and and then all the knights laugh when they hear about gallon's adventure so it's uh but but yeah like you're saying it's all um taken like the magic is not winked at right it's it, right right whatever whatever it is whether it's morgan's magic or or you know, or if he's just playing another trick or, or whatever, it's um, it's an appropriate tale for an adult audience, right? Um, yeah, and I think I think it is a very admirable example of a of a good fairy story. Um, as far as as far as Arthur goes, I mean, I mean, I think he includes Arthur in his court partly because um, they have so many encounters like this with fairy um, that they're almost sort of absorbed into it. Um, well, he, he even says. Uh, in this essay, um, you know, that Arthur was, was once a historical figure, but he's basically been put into this, this cauldron of story, the cauldron of story, this recurring image that he sets up. Mm -hmm. And so Arthur, you know, even though he started as a historical, as a historical figure, uh, absorbed all of this, you know, surrounding folklore, Mm -hmm. fairy tale, magic, and it's, it all kind of got absorbed into his, into that figure and so that's how we get all of the, the arthurian romances and and whatnot so yeah yeah and even even arthur gets taken to fairyland in the end you know in some in some accounts um to, to avalon um so um so yeah absolutely there's one part at, at in this beginning that i that i really love because it comes from a ballad that i really like a lot um called the ballad of thomas the rhymer and it's uh it's it's pretty close to the to the beginning um right under the heading fairy story um and uh basically this poet named thomas the rhymer is um you know sitting under a tree um and of course sitting under a tree at certain times of days is a sure way to mm-hmm. encounter fairies in, in medieval literature um, also being a poet yeah 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 that'll that'll help um uh and uh he sees this beautiful you know vision of this woman coming toward him and 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 he asks you know are you are you the blessed virgin you know um and she's like no 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 i'm not um you know i'm i'm the queen of fairy um I know. And then it, it, there's also, there are parts I want to argue with. and I, I know, some, right? Yeah. Like, like the whole drama thing. We yes! Talk, like, <laughs> I think he just has never encountered, like, no. he doesn't get acting or something. And No. I, that and then yeah. the, the other thing that I wanted to argue with was um, his whole, his, not, I don't want to call it a tirade, but his beef with illustrations. Yeah. You know? He's like, um, illustrations are, they should never be in a, in a good fairy story. And I'm sitting here thinking, I have a whole book over here with illustrations that he did of The Hobbit. So I'm just, 
I'm baffled at why he would go, no, no, you shouldn't illustrate any fairy stories. I get this though, I think was, because this, uh, The Hobbit was already published by mm -hmm. the time he gave this lecture. So this is between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and I, to my knowledge, I, I don't know if he did illustrations for The Lord of the Rings at all. I know uh, other people have obviously, but I don't know if he himself did, but, um, but I, I was just, you know, flipping through the, the book, it's, it's The Art of the Hobbit, I think, there, I see it, but, um, and just looking at his illustrations, I'm like, these are nice. <laughs> Why would you disparage illustrations in your fairy story? I mean, I get his reasoning. His reasoning is that, you know, well, the second that an illustrator illustrates something, then it imposes, that, that, yeah. Right, yeah, he imposes his own vision onto the story and diminishes the reader's own imagination. So I understand that, but I just think, there's room for illustration and the reader's imagination. Yes. And isn't it also, um, Chris, you can just have fun editing this because now we're I on know. a roll. Yeah, we're um, on a roll now. No, I always do. I always do. Uh, no, um, keep going. Yeah. So it's interesting too, because I think his, his picking out the, he loves his love of words and language. Right. But by choosing his words, there's a myth behind the words and beyond the words yeah. that's oh, yeah. not limited by the words. In the same way, there's a story beyond the image, right? Yeah, right. And I, I think he recognizes that, but his, um, he, he seems much more bound to the word yeah. and um, unable to see how that also is filled with choice and the artists. Yes. Yeah. And, well, yeah, because even in the act of of writing, especially for coming up with a plot, I mean, that's you imposing your ideas of what this character would do at this particular time instead of letting the reader, you know, that's how we get fan fiction. Readers go off and write their own versions of whatever the story is. And so there's still a limitation there. Um, I think a lot of it is rooted in, I mean, he's obviously he's very Catholic. And so he's rooted in, you know, John 1 you know, in the beginning was the word. So that's the logos, you know, that, that comes into play. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me that yes, he's, he's very much in that, but his own creation myth involves music as well, mm -hmm. which is another, not, it's not a, that's not words. Um, you know, and, and, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not words, but it's also, he doesn't, he doesn't give us a score of the music, right? Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's very yeah. true. Yeah. And so, yeah, you can, there is, so yeah, there is room to kind of imagine what it would be, at least until somebody makes a movie out of the Silmarillion and scores it. <laughs> and then Tolkien will, <laughs> will be very unhappy with that. <laughs> Amazon, Amazon. Oh, Amazon. Still, still waiting oh. for their, I'm sure, entirely accurate location <laughs> of the Silmarillion or whatever they're doing. Or whatever it is uh, they're doing. They're, they're like, it's set in Tolkien's world, but we no. you know, invited our trendiest writers to write little morality tales about the way we, you know, the way everything's unequal uh, or, or something else. Uh, uh, Scored by Enya. Scored by Enya. We got to have some Enya. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. It's kind of a law now. If you make a Tolkien thing, you have to have an India song in there somewhere. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, those are the two parts where I really did kind of want to argue a little, a little bit with him. 
Yeah. I just, I, it sometimes it's funny in reading this. I he really does come across as kind of, kind of curmudgeonly, like a lovable curmudgeon. Yes, endearing. Yes. Very endearing. Yes, but also you're like, okay, come on, Tolkien. I, it's okay. You can like drama, and it can be a fine vehicle for fantasy. It's it's fine. So do we think? Here's the thing. I have a theory. So this this has trees all over it, right? Like right, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm gonna hit up some mythopia here soon. But um, woo woo, yeah. Uh, he he goes after, of course, Macbeth and Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and he he wrote somewhere, and it's not, of course, in this essay, um, but y'all might know where uh, that he was so disappointed uh, by the trees. Um, and the prophecy of the the forest marching in right mm. on Macbeth, and and when it instead he saw the play, I think as a child, and he had read it, and he was expecting the actual forest to come in, and instead you have just men hiding not very well under branches, which I don't understand how that's really a useful. Um, combat strategy but uh, uh yeah. it worked for shakespeare yeah and and he's like no no this is so disappointing like that's not what it, sh- it should be the trees marching like that's so much cooler and more mysterious and fairy like mm. um and that's why in lord of the rings he has um not just the the tree shepherds but also the weird horns that are wild and come in mm. Basically, gobble up orcs in the night. Yeah, he he was reading Macbeth. Uh, I, I think he was reading it, um, and yeah, he was he was disappointed when that prophecy was fulfilled. As like, oh well, this is what the prophecy really meant—that forests would move. You know that that really just people would be hiding in little, you know, <laughs> branches <trees>, like. Uh, <laughs> Like cartoon characters, um, <laughs> but yeah, I I kind of um, I wasn't sure about that part either. Um, the you can't recreate it on the stage. Um, I I kind of get it. Um, um, in that, if anyone's ever seen a stage version of The Hobbit or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it leaves much <laughs> desired. Um, uh yeah I, I mean i remember at my college they did some kind of a uh you know children's play of the hobbit and the oh, smile yeah. was i mean god bless them, <laughs> really hard to do but the smog was essentially like you know um job of the hut um <laughs> like just like a big paper mache thing with like a, a neck that can, you know, on, on the end um like it was immobile you know um but you can't really do a dragon on a stage right um yeah uh not without a huge budget <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I, i'm a little surprised he didn't address movies i was actually just gonna say that because i was the whole time i was reading the, the his his tirade about drama I I kept wondering, I wonder what he would think about the Lord of the Rings movies. Like, would he be okay with them? I mean, is that it? I mean, I know it's a different medium from the stage. So things can appear more lifelike. Like you can actually have 
ends and yeah. moving trees, you know. Um, I'm just, I, I would be curious. Of course, we'll never know. Yeah. No, I think I think he would think it's a kind of bogus, or shall I say, at least substitute magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's a, I think that too. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he's very much. Um, yeah, well, because even uh, this, the, the quote about drama that made mm -hmm. me think about that is his drama has of its very nature mm -hmm. already attempted a kind of bogus or jealous at least substitute magic the visible and audible presentation of imaginary men in his story so you've already got i mean actors i guess for him that's a layer of right of you know fantasy already and then to keep adding layers is just making it harder and harder i guess to get into that yeah. fantasy right world. it's a quasi-magical secondary world yeah, as it were, an inner or tertiary world, it is a world too much, which is so interesting because Tolkien is all about, in his stories, there's so much nesting going on, mm -hmm. where, and I, I get that it's all in the same world, but mm -hmm. the references to things he hasn't written yet, or, or things that haven't been published yet, and, and stories that we will never know, but that are assumed by the characters give it that richness and that depth. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's no, I don't see a natural reason why a tertiary world is too much and not instead just richer the way yeah. his yeah. literary devices make it richer. Yeah. He also has a thing about, well, at least again with drama, not with movies, I'm not sure, but um, he says, um, you know, you are, for instance, likely to prefer characters, even the basest and dullest to things, if you like drama over over the written word. Mm -hmm. And I, that, again, that's one of those parts where I wanted to say, but I think you can have both, like a preference for characters and story. I, again, see Lord of the Rings, but you know. Yeah, but very little about trees as trees can be got into a play. That's That's true. It all comes back to the trees. You have to have men with hiding under branches to, to get that effect. Well, it'd be interesting to uh, um, read uh, Descent into Hell um, after. Yeah. That's the whole squabble yes. about. In, uh, um, oh. I, I should probably look at like the, the early drama. versions of this to see if he, you know, before. I'm sure. I don't imagine he read descent into hell do you all think he did uh, i don't know i well, i do know in general tolkien wasn't uh, too big on charles yeah, williams novels yeah. well, um, would he just not stories. read them uh, i don't know if he if he did or did i mean well i do know for sure he he read the place of the lion because lewis mentions in the letter to the first letter to charles williams he says i've put some people onto your book it was like, and it mentioned Tolkien and Warney and, and Hugo Dyson. I yeah, he's like, my, my papist friend and I. <laughs> <laughs> I've put him onto it. He's a papist, but I put him onto your book. <laughs> we like Is it, it papist or papist? I never. I was just going to ask. I papist is probably papist. right. Uh, yeah. 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 My papist bad. friend. Yeah, it, <laughs> does. Papist. it does. Uh, apologies all, all to the, all. Uh, Papist. All, all, our, all our papist friends. All if you call yourself a papist, you probably have some other things that, to to work out. Um, but. Um, no, but and then and then I do know uh, All Hallows Eve got read to the Inklings. That's the only novel of Charles Williams that got read to the Inklings. But yeah, beyond that, I don't know if if he would have read any anything else. But hmm. yeah. 
Um, I, I do, I mean, as much as I, I take issue with the fact that I think he never actually got acting and how someone can inhabit and become transformed in a role. Um, I do love that just the, the focus on, on desire Yes. Uh, and it reminds me of a little bit of the weight of glory, even when he's talking about in the very beginning about fairy as the perilous realm um, and the air that blows in that country, which reminds me of um, when C.S. Lewis is trying to define Zengzuk and he's mm-hmm. saying it's like um, hearing news from a country you've never visited or Try remembering the scent of a flower you've never smelled, trying to remember music you've never heard. Um, and Tolkien goes on, I will not attempt to define that nor to describe it directly. It cannot be done. Fairy cannot be caught in a net of words, for one of its qualities is to be indescribable, though not imperceptible. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I. I, I, th- I think Tolkien is at his best when he is hit, when he himself is also casting a spell. Um, he, he also says the magic of fairy is not an end in itself. Its virtue is in its operations. Among these are the satisfaction of certain primordial human desires. Um, yeah. And I, that feels very right to me, um, but I'm not sure if, Um, what you all think as far as just applying beyond the normal, like Lewis Tolkien vision of myth and the world, if that still rings true. You mean like about fairy stories or just uh... like outside, just the, the happy little inklings realm we're in. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is a hard, this is a hard essay in a lot of ways um, because I, I admire it a lot and I love a lot of the things that he says. Um, uh, he, he has a way of kind of defining something the way he wants it to be defined um, <laughs> yeah. rather than like, it's just, it's, it's just hard because he has an ideal for like, this is, this is the way, this is what fairy stories should be. Um, and if you don't rise to that place, then it's not a fairy story. Right. Um, which like, I it's don't Lilith and really... a failed romance or. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, Alice I, and Alice is just a, you know, a dream story. dream story. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, his, if he was doing it dispassionately, right. As, uh, as kind of like, okay, look, um, here are all the instances of the word fairy story in the English language. Here's what they tend to describe. Um, and I'm going to basically like describe what those things all point to the way that the Oxford English dictionary is supposed to work. Right. Um, being descriptive rather than prescriptive. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But, but he's obviously very prescriptive here because he cares about it and he, he's trying to sort of like shove his oar in and be like, this is the kind of thing more people need to write. Right. Uh Um, and he's doing it to himself too. Cause this is like you, you like you all were saying it, this is on the hinge between the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and he's some of the things that he's criticizing here apply to the Hobbit, 
um, and he's going to sort of leave those behind. Actually, the the editors in the introduction um, keep talking about the changes between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings as improvements, um, which which I which I think certainly Tolkien saw them as that. And in some ways, if you're going from something like the Hobbit to something like the Lord of the Rings, it's an improvement. But I really like the Hobbit. Um, yeah. I, I kind of have equal affection for both books. Um, and I, I don't mind when the narrator has little like knowing asides to the audience. And I don't think that needs to just detract from children's enjoyment of it um, or adults enjoyment of it for that matter. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, he has this very increasingly precise vision of what fairy story should do. And I think if he didn't have it, he wouldn't be able to rise to the places that he rises to in Lord of the Rings. But uh, it is still more exclusive than I think it really like, yeah, it's just not, it's just not Mm -hmm. clear to me that what he's talking about is a real thing. Um, <laughs> okay. well, actually, I was, I was going to ask that because in that same passage where you were quoting from Annika um, about the satisfa- satisfying certain primordial human desires, mm-hmm. he goes on to say, um, you know, yeah. one of these desires is to survey the depths of space and time. Another is to hold communion with other living things. A story may thus deal with the satisfaction of these desires with or without the operation of either machine or magic. And in proportion, as it succeeds, it will approach the quality and have the flavor of fairy story. And I was actually sitting here trying to think about what, is there an example out there of a story that does those things without machinery or magic that would still qualify as a fairy story? And I don't know. I couldn't come up with that. Yeah. No, everything has at least some magic, right? Or some. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is. Yeah. And I was trying to. yeah. Yeah. Um, I, he keeps going, he goes to, to Peter Rabbit mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and he goes to George MacDonald. Right. Um, and he, he points out that one of the best things, like when we talk about these desires, um, the, the desire to, to conquer death and, and to understand it, um, like the the best story about death being George MacDonald. And I, let's see, where is that? Um, and that being where MacDonald actually succeeds, where the others he can kind of, which it doesn't... Was, um, was it the Golden Key? Yeah. I think that's the one he... Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. I can't, I can't find it now, but I think that's what it was. Yeah, that's where it's beautiful and poignant and potent, I think, is one of the words he uses. Yes. Yeah. And then Lilith is a is a failed romance. <laughs> yeah, and it's um I, I like I know, Chris, you say you, you want him to be dispassionate and to like fairly evaluate these things, or you would maybe find him more credible if he did, but I kind of love that he's taking these things apart, even when I vehemently disagree with him. Um, yeah, like I, I love that he's giving us this view of say Jordan MacDonald or, um, or Shakespeare or and Andrew Lang, who I 
and even going through the different fairy stories and how these aren't really real fairies. Puss in Boots isn't really a, a good fairy story. That doesn't count. Um, but these really two dark tales that children are warned away from totally is, or however it is. Um, and I, it has a flavor to it. It's like, um, yeah, it's, it's like when someone makes a really strong drink and it, it's, it's not to everybody's taste, right? Um, but he believes in this cocktail and he made it a good cocktail if, if it's to your taste. And, and you can understand like why that, that juniper spice is not going to work with something bright and floral, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I, I don't uh, really, I guess in terms of what he says about story in general here and what he says about, um, you know, fantasy and what he seems to aspire to, right? I, I don't mm -hmm. have a problem with that. I think that's, I think that's great. Um, um, some of his, the, the way in which he's trying, in, in which he's defining things, um, I'm not sure I totally buy. And obviously he studied all these kinds of stories way more than I have, right? Um, um, and, and so I'm sure there, there might be particular things that he's thinking of. Um, it's just, it's just to say, okay, this dictionary gets fairy tales wrong. Um, here's what fairy tales really are, but, um, you know, not in this case and not in this case and not in this case, because they don't do the kind of things I think fairy tales should do. Um, it, it, it's a little, yeah, it's, it's just hard to tell. Is he saying, is he saying this is what a true fairy story is, or is he saying this is what a, um, true fairy story should do and should be right. Um, like, yeah, I mean, really just, just that, um, I, I and I, I don't have any, you know, problem yeah. with things that he's, that he's asserting as like, this is what we should go for, you know, or, or even like, these are to me the best kinds of tales. Right. But then to say like, these to Only me these are, are yeah, are, are yeah. what fairy stories, sh you know, are, um, um, I, I don't, I don't know, like, the definition of fairy stories is whatever J.R.R. Tolkien wants fairy stories to, to be, it seems like, um, which, uh, which he's got a lot more authority than most people to speak on that, you know, yeah. on that issue. Um, so let's, I mean, let's, let's, what is he trying to define here? Like, he's saying it should be presented as true, and then he, he gets to what, what, do, what do we mean by true? in a little bit um not a dream story um not a beast fable right and something that goes to the satisfaction of certain primordial human desires mm -hmm. I, I mean yes he's sort of offering these definitions but they're really they're not very super specific honestly um and I mean, he even says, you know, talking about the origins of fairy stories, the history of fairy stories is probably more complex than the physical history of the human race. So 
you know, uh, he's, I, I, I don't, I don't know that he's exactly positioning himself to, to offer, all right, this is the definition of fairy stories for all time. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's kind of, maybe it's an ideal in, in, in his own mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, yeah. I agree with a lot of what he says here. Like when, uh, you know, when, when Andrew Lang apparently, um, yeah, uh, includes in the Blue Fairy book uh, part of Gulliver's Travels. Like that's just weird right. because Lang's yeah, Enterprise right. is supposed to be uh, collecting folk tales, right? Like sort of indigenous folk tales have been told by people um, over centuries, right? Um, and he includes, I guess, to market it better to children and their parents, uh, part of a voyage to Little Bit, because, oh, these are little people. They must be yeah. like fairies. Um, and I, I'm totally on board with Tolkien when he's like, no, that's not. That's not the same kind of thing. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, a lot of the other things he says here, I, I think are, I think are great. The beast fable thing. I'm kind of like, yeah, it's a, it's a good distinction, like in kind. Um, but if by fairy stories, you mean an accumulation of ancient folk tales that should be included in the blue or lavender or, you know, Lilac, yeah. Yeah, lilac or, or <laughs> uh, you know, whatever other color books of fairies. Um, uh, then, I mean, I'm sure there are old folk tales about beasts and possibly even old folk tales about, you know, um, talking beasts. That, and, and he doesn't discount talking beasts. But I, I imagine like the, yeah, I, I don't know. Beast fables, like like Aesop's fables, obviously not in the same genre because there's a very clear moral, right? And, and fairy tales right. shouldn't have this. Um, but um, but yeah, like the monkey's heart. Like there are some, there are some, you know, there are some cultures that tell folk tale um, in which um, you know animals are essentially the people in the folk tale, um, and it's not really a fable because of that. It's there. It's, it's like mythology. Um, like, mm-hmm. uh, the, the brothers one and seven Hunapu who, uh, you know, in the Popol Vuh, like, uh, uh, take down, uh, seven Maka, right. Who's a, who's a spirit, but also an animal, but also kind of a person, uh, just not, just not mortal. Um, so, um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I do think he, he gets somewhere when he talks about abstraction and, and when he makes the point about adjectives. Um, and of course, because he's a philologist and he loves words to him, um, words are magic and, and language is magic and, and bound with, with story, which is kind of an obvious point, but one I hadn't, um, meditated on as much, uh, but when he gets to uh, like the, the grass green, um, <laughs> sorry, my cat is really into <laughs> green grass green as well. Yes, <laughs> she misses the green grass. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the thing best left to words, right? Fantasy is a thing best left to words. And he, he goes into this and I, I, I think this is defensible, even though I I don't find it entirely convincing um, when he's talking about the the potency of fantasy as art and, and what is a fairy story. Well, it is fantastic. Images of things that are not 
only not actually present, but which are indeed not to be found in our primary world at all, or are generally believed not to be found there. Um, and he says, this is the, the virtue and not a vice of fantasy. It's not a lower, but a higher form of art. Indeed, the most nearly pure form. And so when achieved, the most potent. Um, and he, he talks about, this is when he, he gets into sub-creation. He says it's difficult to achieve, uh, but at any rate, it is found in practice that the inner consistency of reality is more difficult to produce, the more unlike are the images and the rearrangements of primary material to the actual arrangements of the primary world, which I think gets at least to part of what he's talking about in what, what is a fairy story. And he, he says, well, it's fantasy. And the secondary world, um, this, is, this is the highest art. Um, and he, he even defends it as narrative art, story making. Again, he says primary, most potent. Um, so he, he gets to the power of narrative. So there's something in the fact that it's a story, right? It's not just passing images or um, the rhythm of a poem or, or music that you hear. Like it's a very different thing you're encountering in the power of story. Um, and, and that it's, it's um, something that is not, not in the primary world. When, when you're talking about the argument he's making, it's that, are you talking about right above fantasy, but fairy stories offer also in a peculiar degree or mode, these things, fantasy, recovery, escape, consolation, all things of which children have, as a rule, less need than older people. Most of them are nowadays very commonly considered to be bad for anybody. I will consider them briefly. He's, he's defending um, against the charge of this is escapist, uh, self-indulgent literature, right? Only fit for children and people who can't face reality. And he says, oh no, like this is, this is what we need to be fully human. Um, yeah. And this is, yeah. Yeah, I, I think for me, the trouble is I already accept as a given that, of, of course, fairy tales are, are good for adults. Of course, fairy tales yeah. are very serious and good for us because that's been my experience. And I, yeah. to the point where I don't, I don't even engage with the, oh, well, you should understand that why we think fairy tales belong in the nursery is they're discarded and they're... Um, it's like the shabby furniture in because the adults don't like it is not fashionable, but it's actually really sturdy and good like that. I don't, I, I think don't it's that. hard. It's hard now too, because in our context, most people aren't having this argument. Most people right. are, are totally on board with no fantasy and fairy stories. Like, I mean, we've had an, I mean, Harry Potter for crying out yeah. loud, just kind yeah. of, Blew that yeah. argument out of the water, you know. Yeah. I mean, you have a few people on the fringes, maybe out there, who were like, "No, that fantasy stuff is, you know, it's just yeah. for kids." You know, but honestly, I think that's the, the hard part with this is that yes, he's making these arguments, but pretty much everybody that I know is going to be on board, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and the crescendo of fantasy recovery, escape, consolation, yeah. like that. That to me is is the whole point. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how do we? So how do we apply this? to now and to, like are there things that he mentions that are 
um, generally like bad tendencies in his day that we also see somehow cropping up in our day, despite the fact that this huge kind of Tolkien created genre of adult fantasy, you know, Tolkien right. yeah, world uh, via um, Dungeons and Dragons via world of Warcraft. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> trickling down to all kinds of other things. Um, um, uh, yeah. Are, are there still ways that we're doing this, that we're preventing, um, you know, that we're, that we're relegating um, fantasy to children that we're, um, you know, are, are stories that have wizards in them necessarily fairy stories of this kind, um, or or (laughs) stories of this kind, right? Or is there a real tendency to want to make, um, fantastic literature, um, realistic and applicable Mm. to the real world, right? And, and bring it back down to, you know, our situation here and now. So it speaks to us in a very obvious way. Um, and, uh, I, I think, I think that, you know, might be interesting to, to consider as well. Um, yeah. Oh, go. Oh, no, you go ahead. <laughs> um, well, I, I think in his discussion, um, and he, he quotes Lang, uh, talking about, um, he who would enter into the kingdom of fairy should have the heart of a little child. Um, and, and he says, you know, that sounds sentimental, um, but, but that's right. The possession necessary to all high adventure and into kingdoms, both less and far greater than fairy humility and innocence. These things, the heart of a child must mean in such a context do not necessarily imply an uncritical wonder, nor indeed an uncritical tenderness. Chesterton once remarked that the children in whose company he saw Matterlink's blue bird were dissatisfied because it did not end with a day of judgment. And it was not revealed to the hero and heroine that the dog had been faithful and the cat faithless. For children, he says, are innocent and love justice, while most of us are wicked and naturally prefer mercy. Um, and I, I do think there can be a tendency in our stories to... Um, to have anti-heroes or, or to try to make complex characters. And, and again, going to that point of focusing on characters rather than things, um, instead of having like, oh, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Like Aragorn just is a good guy, right? He's profoundly good, which is why he is worth serving and fighting with and on and on. Um, but now we have heroes who are conflicted and who's um, like the Gandalf figure in Harry Potter is really messed up and messed other people up. And there are great moments of doubt, not just because he's dead, but also because he's, he was a jerk. Like he, he made big mistakes and father figures are just from the beginning damned. So I, I think that is definitely a, a failure of our current age or a blind spot maybe. Yeah. Because we want this. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think, you know, I, I think Tolkien especially would say, okay, listen, I don't like this constant insistence on um, 
technology that we have, you know, that, that if you don't, if you don't have electric lights, then you're trying to escape from reality because guess what? Electric lights are here to stay and they're <laughs> in the future. And you know, that's true. Uh, they were, uh, but uh, uh, even though Tolkien seems a little bit dubious uh, uh, on that, on that point, they did stay around. Um, but um um, but but yeah, like there's there there is a kind of anachronism. Uh, I need a better word than anachronism. Uh, there, there's a kind of uh, luddite quality to a lot of fantasy, right? Um, mm. which, at least at least to Tolkien's uh, fantasy and and, and uh, others, you know, and others' fantasy following Tolkien, um, because they don't like kind of the mechanized, cheaply reproduced stuff that we fill our world with even though it obviously fills some needs that we have um but um but i think we assume because of that or we have assumed i think that's changing more and more um that fantasy therefore needs to be in a kind of pseudo middle ages um for some reason um and that it you know needs to involve you know main transportation is horses and uh you know you've got wizards and robes and nobody wears real pants unless they're like leather pants um and uh you know all, all of this uh all this kind of cheap anachronism i guess um that, mm. that you get in the wake of in the wake of tolkien's uh, popularity mm. especially um that doesn't really examine itself very closely to yeah. be like okay why exactly is this said in like a pseudo middle ages thing you know um uh and um and i think we have a lot of stories now that are breaking away from that a, a little bit but still like very much influenced by that um like the game of thrones you know uh series um and uh, it's not really like it's cosmetically, it's the Tolkien sort of thing, right? Um, and people who liked a lot of the stuff in Tolkien are going to like a lot of the stuff in Game of Thrones or in Harry Potter, right? Um, because it's it's got magic or you know whatever mm -hmm. i mean harry, harry potter's in the modern world but they're still like they don't have electronics because they use magic in the you know wizardy play hogwarts right um but um but there's not um a lot of the deeper things that he's talking about here right, right. don't necessarily have i mean Game of Thrones famously didn't know how to end itself, right? Uh, because because well, cause they, the, the books haven't ended. <laughs> yeah, and 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 because they rejected from the outset this idea mm. that there could be a happy ending, um, right? You catastrophe, right. which is yeah. also the point. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and yeah. uh, you know, Harry Potter did not. Um, Harry Potter definitely, you know, does the you catastrophe thing. Um, uh, I, I find it a little less sublime um, yeah. Than, yeah. Than, in, uh, than in Lord of the Rings, um, but, um, but it's still there. There's a kind of refusal in this essay and in Tolkien's work in general to view the happy ending as cheap, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, that, this, that this corresponds to a deep desire that we all have and that our fiction should remind us of that desire. And there are plenty of works... Um, that that like often like I really enjoy them right um, like they're not bad works but they they'd be classified as fantasy but they want to be more cynical than that 
right? And they and they want to they want to kind of deny the possibility of that sort of you know you catastrophe. Yeah. Either either more cynical and or just subverting all of the tropes that you know flow out of Tolkien. So then that and that becomes kind of the main aim of those works, rather than you know the deeper themes of you know escape consolation. Yeah. Right. Um, you're not so a, whether, whether no or not that makes them effective or not, you know, it's right. Right. debatable. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, do you all think, so, so what is the difference between fairy story and fantasy? And do you all think that in order to be a good example of either one of them, there needs to be kind of this, you, you catastrophic turn like this, uh, this this change from bad to good um or, or or is it possible to have good fantasy and have it not end happily well i mean doesn't tolkien do that in something like the children of hurin hmm. i mean that's yeah. that and he's and his source material is similarly dark um but it explores a lot and it it gets to profound questions of fate and reality and can you escape or do you create, are you doomed? What is your role? What is choice? What is free will <laughs> when it comes to the gods? Um, and it's wonderful and it's very tragic. And there's a hint at the end that maybe there's redemption possibly. Um, but it ends in a couple suicides. Um, and, and then I think Kieran is one of the elf friends who um, gets to triumph at the very end of the universe against um, the darkness, right? Uh, so a very long delayed happy ending for him, maybe, but he's still, his story is start to end a tragedy um yeah 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 that's that's a great point not even tolkien really keeps this keeps this principle right like even even lord of the rings where you have this great new catastrophic turn um uh frodo's frodo's like you know i'm tired sam you know to uh, <laughs> quote elijah wood <laughs> But uh, but yeah, there's some wounds that can't be healed in this world. Which yeah, is exactly, why exactly. Tolkien's realism is so much, yeah, more potent than anything else, right? Because yeah, it, there's sorrow. Like sorrow runs throughout his work, yeah. um, and the joy is is deeper and sharper because of it, and that's that's why it's earned joy. Yeah, I mean that's what I was gonna say because I I think it's important to point out that just because Tolkien, you know one of his requirements is that you know there's a happy ending it's it's even then it's not a cheap happy ending because there are there have clearly been sacrifices made things lost frodo will never be the same really none of the hobbits are are the same after the lord of the rings um so no one is is unaffected by the trials that they've gone through so even though yes in the end there's a happy ending um it's not just a, okay everything's fine and you know yeah. There's no, there's no reason to, yeah, for that sorrow, um, you know, even though there's joy, it's kind of tinged a, a little bit by, you know, because yeah. Frodo has to sail away and leave his friends and, 
you know, yes, he gets to go on this grand adventure to the, you know, to the Undying Lands, but mm -hmm. there is still loss there. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, I was just thinking of George MacDonald, which is one of the stories I read as a child, well, he, uh, adolescent, young adolescent, um, where I was shocked by the ending um, because the, the Princess and Curdy, um, like, there are all these magical things happen and Curdy comes to save the princess and save her father, the king, and he wins against all this, this evil plot and um, he eventually becomes king and you're like, yay, and the city gets rebuilt and yay, like all these wonderful things happen. Um, and then like their kids were bad, I think, or something. And there, there's a very quick decline. Um, they mined too far and the whole city collapses and everything is just gone that they had worked for. And that's the end that wow. George MacDonald put on there. And, and it's still, I think it counts as a fairy story. It's beautiful yeah. and, um, awakens all those desires right um but there is also that and maybe it's just that reflected um that consolation to our own reality of our work is in vain in one sense but not eternally um mm -hmm. but everything all the kingdoms we build here are going to crumble and fall yeah yeah well, <laughs> categories i know categories <laughs> It's that, it's that ancient desire to uh, commune with the animals. Commune with living things. <laughs> We're achieving that right now. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think those are great points um, that it's really not as cut and dried, even as saying that in Tolkien, the story always ends happily because it usually actually does not. Um, um, I wonder if that's like something he's aspiring to in, cause he gets it in the Hobbit. Right. And, and then he writes this essay and maybe he's aspiring to that in the Lord of the Rings and in trying to gear it for, because there's this whole part about how, you know, this um, fairy stories, it's, it's a total accident that we associate them with children. Right. Um, right. That, um, you know, uh, Nur we we put them in the nursery because that's where we put our old stuff that we don't use anymore and also because nursemaids are from the lower classes and they're telling the fairy stories to the you know upper class children um and and their stories that are more sort of connected more earthy right um and so he's trying to he's trying to separate the idea of fairy stories from the idea of oh this is kid stuff right um and so he's writing the lord of the rings specifically um to to kind of do that right to to be like listen i know the hobbit was for kids uh this is right. not kids, right um and, and this is for uh this is for adults but i wonder if when he gets to that place of the kind of the kind of realism that he has in the lord of the rings if he's just sort of unable to just make it a purely um, oh, everything, everything ends totally happily and everybody's, everybody's, you know, parting in Valinor by the end. Right. Um, or, or whatever, but don't worry, you know, the, all the hobbits were reunited in the, you know, in the, in the lands beyond the seas. And, uh, it was great. Um, but 
yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I just wonder if he, uh, if he just found that he couldn't, um, with the amount of psychological realism and, and the fact that this is occurring in what he considers to be the third and fourth age of our actual world. Right. Right. If, if it was just um, impossible to have total fulfillment there. Yeah. Well, does eucatastrophe need to be total fulfillment? I mean, can't, can't eucatastrophe like the right, the Rohirrim is glorious. Like that to me is the, right, that's the crescendo of the yes. catastrophe in Lord of the Rings. Um, and it's glorious that King Theoden dies, even mm -hmm. though it is grievous, right? Um, yeah. And didn't have to happen had Gandalf been able to go and not had to take care and save Faramir from Denethor. Um, but that Theoden died in glory was a fitting thing. Um, it was still very sad. Uh, yeah, I, I, but I, I don't think, yeah, I think joy and you catastrophe, like the happy ending doesn't necessarily mean everyone all together, everyone's a winner. <laughs> yeah, you get a car yeah. and you get a car and you get a car. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it might mean, um, Someone yeah, no, I, I, I think yeah. he himself acknowledges that. I mean, in yeah. the essay, because it says, he, when he's talking about eucatastrophe, because it does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, right. of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I think it, it almost sounds like actually it's, 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 he's saying it's necessary for there to be this sorrow and grief because otherwise, yeah, you get that cheap, happy ending that really means nothing and isn't nearly as poignant as it would be, um, you know, if, if you, if you put all that sorrow and grief in there beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, seems though like it should have something to do with the ending of a fairy story right that that at least there's a, this turn of events even if there's no guarantee that everything's happy after that and the interesting thing yeah. about lord of the rings is there's this it's it's much longer than a mere uh kind of uh Denouement. yeah 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 it's uh it, it it's like another little mini story, right? Which, which yeah. I was fine with. A lot of people were annoyed by it, but I, I was like, oh, sweet, more. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the Shire, do it. Um, but, but yeah, um, there's a, uh, um, but, but yeah, then we get into sadness again, right? Um, after this moment of triumph, when it looked like all was lost, it looks like, it looked like, you know, um, uh, either Frodo was not going to throw the ring in the fire or Sam and Frodo were going to get killed by the lava or, or whatever. Um, and, and then suddenly, you know. Yeah, but even that would have been a good ending. You know, here we are, Sam, at the end of all things. Like, it's there were so many miracles, so many eucatastrophes on top of eucatastrophe. Yeah. So many deliverances, yeah. right? Yes. Um, but yeah. that, but none of them seemed 
they all worked in the story. They were all built in. None of them were deus ex machina. Like right. they were, right. they all fit. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think Gollum really is the agent of the biggest catastrophe in the, yes. in the plot, mm-hmm. right? That, that um, if he hadn't bitten off Frodo's finger, Frodo would have kept the ring and would have decided to do the wrong thing. And everyone would have, you know, been destroyed at the, in the, in this last battle or, or, or something along those lines. Right. And um, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, there are, there are lots of other points throughout um, throughout that trilogy or not trilogy throughout the very long novel that was divided. <laughs> Six books. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, there are, there are lots of points uh, that, that prepare you for that sort of turn. Right. It's like right. He's training you to think, to, to like almost expect that. Right. Um, um, and then, yeah, the ride of the Rohirrim is one of the, um, actually in all of the places where you have the Rohirrim, they're a great agent of that as well. That's, that's really, yeah. One of the, one of the best, um, parts. Um, and Faye, he looked, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well. so, so why do we need consolation? Why do we need escape? Why do we need fantasy? Yeah, um, and and does it have to like what what forms can it take? Right? Um, is it does it necessarily look like a pre medieval sort of world or a medieval sort of world? Right? Or could you write a fairy story that has consolation and escape and recovery? and set it in contemporary world or some other, you know, era. Um, I, so I have been thinking about this, um, cause in thinking of Dorothy Sayers, who's writing detective novels and contemporary to her own time, right? Mm-hmm. 1920s, 30s, 40s. Um, she, her work succeed, I think, not just because Lord Peter Whimsey is dashing and funny and weird um, and highly entertaining, but but also because that's a secondary world that I I really want to visit. Um, and I don't know what London was like in the 1930s, but I think it was something like that. And I think she gives me uh, a really good window into that world um so i think i think for a lot of a lot of my peers i know historical fiction functions that way without the magical element or the um or the machines but and or necessarily maybe it does give you a window i guess on time and space beyond us but it really is just this very well-realized world um, that I don't have immediate realistic access to. But that, that, that isn't really fantasy, but I, I right. think it functions and does these things that Tolkien is talking about. Yeah, it, gi- it gives um, uh, um, escape, um, right, for, for sure. Um, well, and I, yeah. I actually um, was when you were talking about historical novels, I actually thought of this, he's got a sentence near that says history often resembles myth because mm. they are both ultimately of the same stuff. 
So I think there is something to that because um, again, it, it is still kind of an escapism because we don't live in the 1930s in London. And so you are entering a world that, yeah, you don't have access to. So there is, I mean, yeah, maybe on the surface, you wouldn't call it a fairy story, but I mean, I think the whimsy novels function as that without all the, the magic and the, you know, machines, but yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's just what good literature mm. does. I mean, even recovery, right? Um, uh, you escape from all these things, you know, like all these things that are pressing on you, you know, in, in terms of like the, the world essentially saying, you know, you need to pay attention to this right now. This is, this is so important. Yes. And if you right. don't say something about it, or if you don't like sit up and notice it or whatever else you're trying to get out of your obligation as someone living in the 21st century to like, you know, tow whatever line you want you to tow. Um, and, yeah. um, and and just being able so so I think there very much still is that resentment toward people who want to escape. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> even as there are like you Which know is, there are, there are plenty of people that spend all their time binge watching television and uh, playing or games, getting high. Or whatever um, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, it's interesting that it's resentment. Is it? Do you think that's a function of envy? Because I I wonder about that. I don't know. I imagine um, we found all kinds of ways to, to sanction envy um, um, at least according to screw tape and um, you know, screw tape proposes a toast. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I mean that, that certainly could be there. There's a real, um, there's a real desire to, I think everybody who's enthusiastic about something, right. Um, once they totalize that enthusiasm and make it into this is something that all good people are, mm. um, you know, are, are on my side about and very, very much care about right now. Um, uh, you know, and, 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 and like, it might be really great that they're enthusiastic about it, but if they don't allow you the space to also sort of come to that place, right. Um, it, it becomes almost a kind of um, dictatorial thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and almost a kind of like, um, well, you know, if if you're going to try to try to get out of this particular, you know, obligation, right? Um, uh, then you know you're a horrible human being, right? Um, or you must be one of those over there on that side, you know? Yep. Um, and and, mm -hmm. and it's just kind of like, no, I'm just. Like I'm just a, a human being and I, I want, <laughs> I want to be able to like have the freedom to concentrate on what I want to concentrate on yep. and mm -hmm. like, you know, and, and maybe I'll come to your same conclusions about stuff and maybe I won't. Um, but, um, you know, stop trying to force me to them. Um, and, and let me, um, pursue what I, what I like, but, but yeah, there's, there's a certain, um, there's a certain mistrust of that for sure. I think, um, now as, as, as well as there was then I'm sure at all times there kind of is. Yeah. Well, and that it's interesting because pushing back against that sort of 
totalism and it becomes domineering, right? Um, is it's a sharp contrast to what um, what Tolkien is talking about with enchantment, mm-hmm. um, enchantment producing a secondary world into which both designer and spectator can enter to the satisfaction of their senses while they are inside. It's not an art, but a technique. It's um, is is the what he calls magic in sort of a pejorative sense. Um, its desire is power in the world, domination of things and wills, um, which is the opposite of enchantment. Enchantment is not seeking delusion nor bewitchment and domination. It seeks shared enrichment, partners in making and delight, not slaves. Um, and I, I love that because Tolkien obviously wants to tell us certain things in his works, right? Like there, there are points to Lord of the Rings. There are views of the world that you can draw from the story um, without it being moralizing and, and without him rubbing your nose in it um, for how you should see authority or the goodness of gardening or, or having hope. Um, and he, fantasy enchantment being something that casts a spell without dominating your will, I think that's a fine line. And I, I think when it's poorly done, even in, maybe especially in story, is when you get the sort of grading, um, yeah, the, un, the failed fantasy. Yeah. I think what you get is a lot of times it's propaganda, just yeah. straight up, you know, <laughs> like right. this is, this is what I, I'm going to impose my particular view of the world on you. And I'm not, whereas good art lets you, you know, draw your own conclusions from what you just read or seen or, you know, heard. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that's, that's essentially what bad fantasy can, or just bad story in general. It's no longer a story. It's just propaganda at that point. Yeah. 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 And, and there can be a resentment, I think, um, um, you know, we saw it, we saw it in the eighties with the, uh, you know, um, what, this doesn't fit into my very precise Christian worldview of the way Ah. this story is anathema. Right. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing it again in other ways. Um, and, and it's, it's just, uh, um, it's, it's human nature, right? Whatever, whatever group is in power, if, if they're allied in an ideology, which, you know, of course they often will be right. Um, is gonna, is gonna kind of be like, well, anything that doesn't really neatly fit into this ideology in a way that an idiot could understand, um, <laughs> like that's not good enough. Um, we need to, we need to very, you know, narrowly make everything into an allegory for the truths Mm -hmm. that we're trying to put upon, you know, everyone and, and kind of, and kind of beat them over the head with, and they might be really good truths. Um, uh, but, um, they, um, it, there's, it's a certain amount of distrust, um, for, of, of, of other humans. Right. And, yeah. and people tend to live down to that kind of distrust and, and become, mm-hmm. you know, as, as stupid as you 
think that they're going to be. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, need to have all the right morals served up to them and not have to be like a a bulleted list in your, in your story of all the, all the points you're going to hit, you know, here's what we want you to take away from this. And if you don't take that away from it, then you're wrong, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so, so then there's, there's no room for interpretation for discussion. It's just, well, here's what our movie was about or book was about, you know? And and if you don't take that risk with your art, right. um, Then, chances are people are going to encounter whatever whatever of your moral beliefs or 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 whatever else you do put in your art people are going to encounter encounter it as like a very external thing because you're not Mm -hmm. giving them a chance to find it for themselves right um which uh which i mean you know tolkien certainly his world that he makes is a moral world right um but but it's also a world that you can freely move around in that plenty of people who don't believe what Tolkien believed, which I think is like most people in the world, right? Um, uh, Don't believe exactly what Tolkien believed. Um, um, Love to be in that world, right? And they they love to find escape there um, and and Mm -hmm. recovery and consolation there. Um, But yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's because, honestly, Tolkien didn't set out to write a Christian allegory, you know, um, he, it, and really he never directly references his Christianity at all. And so that I think that that helps with the appeal of the stories mm-hmm. that, you know, in rather than talking about a specific religion or a, a set of dogma, then it's it, it's it's more about the the universal human experience almost. Um where he's and, and he sort of addresses that in here, you know, all humans essentially want escape. They desire escape, consolation, um, a good, you know, the happy ending, um, you know, and so, and so that's, that's where he's coming from rather than from a particular, yes, his, his faith influences his work and that's, that's obvious, but it's not so obvious that it smacked you over the, the head with it. So, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this first part of our conversation about J.R.R. Tolkien's On Fairy Stories. There's more to come. We want to say a big thank you to those of you who left reviews on iTunes. They mean a lot, and they help us to justify the time we spend on this in a world full of more urgent obligations. If you've been listening to this show, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Feel free to drop us a line at inklingsvarietyhour, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks, and until next time.
best encounter full of joy and scheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.